Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant to nourish the seeds of change. But maybe these are more seeds of remembrance. Um, I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap. And someone knows that the uh, sugar, salt, uh, fat um, of the standard American diet, the SAD diet, is causing a lot of health problems. I mean, here's just one fact. In the 1950s, the rate of diabetes was below 1%. Yet by 2015, over 7% of Americans had diabetes. Why is this? And perhaps could returning to an indigenous food system reverse this trend? And and that's our topic for today. We're going to be talking about indigenous foods. And with us in studio is Derek Nicholas. And he's a nutrition coordinator at the Division Division of Indian Work and author of a book called Eating with the Seasons. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Hello, thank you for having me today. Yeah, thanks for being here. Okay, so tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so my name is Derek Nicholas. I'm from Milwaukee area. I'm a member of the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior Chippewa, which uh, for those who aren't familiar, it's a reservation up in northern Wisconsin, right on Lake Superior. Uh, And um, my journey for food kind of started when I started my undergraduate at University of Minnesota Morris. I went for economics and global business management, but during my time there, I had a passion for food, and I began working in the Native American gardens and working closely with our seeds and our plant relatives, and that kind of developed into watching the food grow from seed and actually putting it onto the table and then starting to work into like the culinary world. And after I graduated, I worked with Sean Sherman for a little bit at the Indigenous Food Lab, and then... Um, Shortly after my time there, I began working at the Division of Indian Work as the Nutrition Program Coordinator. Wow. And there's some fun free classes coming up at Seward Co-op. And um, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so we're partnering up with the Seward Co-op, and we're doing uh, Indigenous Food Series. So myself, I'm teaching a couple classes, and I'm also partnering with uh, Jim Wild Health to teach a couple classes. So these are free virtual classes. Our first, well, I already did one. I did an underground oven, and so I did, I dug a pit and filled like, the outside of the pit like wall with rocks and had a fire going for a couple hours and got those rocks red hot. And I put in a duck and a squash inside that pit and covered it up and let it cook underground for a couple hours. So that video is getting edited right now and will uh, premiere November 3rd. Now, that is so fascinating, that cooking um, with an underground stove like that. And I want, we'll be talking more about that down the line because, I mean, well, let's talk right now. So how does that work? Have you done that before? I mean, what, uh, tell us about this history and how these underground stoves work. Yeah, so underground ovens is kind of like a primitive cooking technique. It's been used all the way around the world. It's pretty handy because it can be done anywhere. You don't need an oven to actually cook something. You can do it in the ground with just some fire and some rocks. Um, I use field rocks, the importance of using field rocks opposed to rocks that are found, let's say, in like a river bed or in a lake, is that these field rocks, that they're dry, they don't contain moisture. So when they get brought up to a high heat, they don't explode and uh, shoot rock fragments everywhere. So um, this is kind of like something I've learned, just picked up, just throughout like my life experiences i've done this is kind of like my second time doing it i've done it in like a smaller scale before with some friends out in the woods but um this is kind of like my first time like 
really doing it, and it turned out well. And um, yeah, it's, it's going to be fun to see you how it turned out. The video talk about out. liberation. I mean, there's no big multinational uh, gas company. Which, by the way, I'm kind of mad at a yeah. big national gas company right now. But um, <laughs> that's probably. But um, but so 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 all this is is actually digging a hole in the ground. How big of a hole? So I put a duck and um, a squash in there. So my hole was about three feet by three feet and three feet down. And then can you reuse this hole once you make it? Yep, you can reuse the hole. Wow. So, yep, it's done all the way around the world. I mean, like Hawaiians, they do this with pigs. Um, I forget the Hawaiian name for it. But um, it's kind of like a traditional cooking style. It's it's really fun, and it gives like the food a nice smoky taste, and you don't have to uh, watch it all day. You just leave it in there and take it out when it's when it's time to eat, and you, you just you, that sounds kind of simple, yeah, and it, fun even. It is fun, and you know you can have like a whole family or friends gathering with you, and you just pull apart the meat and just <laughs> have like a little feast of it. Yeah, that that sounds great. So uh, and then um uh, so that's that's the one class and th- that class already happened. That video is going to be online soon. Yep, it will be edited and premiering November third, right before my other class that I'm going to be teaching with Hope Flanagan from Dream of Wild Health, also on November third. That would be from six to seven p.m. I believe, and that will be um, a tea workshop. So we're going to be talking about medicinal teas that we can find here in the North American continent. Um, these teas you can be found in Minnesota area, and uh, we're going to talk about the medicinal purposes and culinary uses of these teas. You know, teas aren't only used to be drinking orally, but they're also used as other stuff, such as like a bath additive or hair rinse or a wet compress for medicinal purposes. So um, it'll be an interesting and fun discussion. And so if people want to sign up for these free classes, they can just go to Seward Co-op and sign up there, and it's the Zoom class. Correct. It will lead you to like an Eventbrite uh, registration link. And then, um, and so that tea class is on November 3rd. Um, and tell us a little bit more about um, your like, – like how you've been making teas and how people can – Make teas. I know a lot of people. It's like I don't want to just drink water, and yet, I mean, drinking pop and all this other stuff is really not very good for us at all. And there's all this wonderful wildcraft and plants out there, and we can be making our own awesome beverages. Yeah, that's, that's exactly true. I mean, teas are a great, uh, diverse drink that you can have uh, on hand. They're very cheap and. Well, I mean, it's not even cheap. It's free. You can just go out in your backyard and harvest it and dry it and have it all winter long. And um, it'll provide you with very good nutrients, and they're usually packed high in antioxidants and keep you um, well, keep your body well-balanced and healthy throughout the seasons. I uh, Last night I made myself a catnip tea. Oh, so I just, I've uh, growing a lot of catnip. It grows – I mean it's a really easy plant to grow. Mm-hmm. And then just dry it. You can just hang it upside down and dry it or put it in a dehydrator and throw some dry catnip leaves in hot water and voila. It's a wonderful. It even has a little bit of a calming effect. Yeah. Yeah, it's always interesting because I feel like these teas also have different effects on different people. Like, for example, uh, a friend of mine was just up north, and she harvested some chaga mushrooms, and she gifted them to me. 
And um, these are like really hard mushrooms, and I was able to pulverize some to a powder, and mm-hmm. I gifted some back to her, and she had a headache, and she drank some of that tea, and she said her headache gone away, which was it was really cool to hear because I have heard of chaga mushrooms being uh, having medicinal properties to help with brain function. They mm-hmm. lowers like oxidative stress levels in your brain and helps with like learning, memory, and focus, and so it's kind of cool to actually like hear like a real testimony to it. Yeah, so. yeah, and 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 you said some like everyone reacts differently to different plants. Yep. So it's not like a one size fits all world. It, that's that's exactly true. In fact, that one size fits all. You you we write a lot about food sovereignty, and so really understanding our individual selves or, or something. I'm kind of struggling a little bit here. But um, but there is a connection between personalized health and food sovereignty. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, our, everyone has different genetics and uh, food fuels different people in different ways. You know, um, for like an Native American like me, I may get more nutrition out of indigenous foods in the North American continent than um, like a European or an African or an Indian person may receive. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. it's it's pretty cool. And the idea of food sovereignty really drives my work. Um, I'm pretty passionate about providing like healthy and culturally appropriate foods for people and doing it in like a sustainable way. What does that word mean, food sovereignty? Uh, pretty much just means what I said, just be able to provide people healthy and culturally appropriate foods and also doing it sustainably. So it's kind of doing things in a localized setting and connecting back with the earth. And that connecting with the earth because, um, well, uh, we've all been so colonized in our food systems. And again, I can point to that little statistic I started the show with, you know, Less than 1% of us had diabetes. Now over 7% of us have diabetes. The majority of the food that we're eating, um, sugars, fats, grains, these are not um, milk, dairy. They're not indigenous. So what are some indigenous foods? Um, Right now I've been cooking with a lot of wild rice, um, bison, squash, pumpkin. Um, Then you can also go out and forage stuff. Um, one new plant that I forged this year was hackberries, which was mm. pretty cool. Hackberries are this berry with has kind of like a bigger nut in the middle. It doesn't have much flesh to it, but the flesh it has is very tasty. It tastes just like a date. Um, so, yeah, you just kind of have to be aware of and learn. Um, I'm still learning. There's so many plants out there. and just... There is so many plants, and, you know, to... I, 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 I think as a culture, we really don't have a good understanding of what exactly the last hundred years have done to the soil and the planet and to each other um, and the the depth of the tragedy. Um, so, for example, um, topsoil loss in the in the in, in our area right now, it, you know, we've lost feet of topsoil and what that meant and how many plants we have lost and how do we, How do we take a sad song and go back? And how do we rediscover those indigenous roots that we all share? So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio, and we're talking about indigenous foods. Hey, Jude, don't make it bad. 
Um, you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, and we're talking with Nera, uh, Derek Nicholas, and he is a nutrition coordinator, Division of Indian Work, um, and he's also the author of the book, Eating with the Seasons. So tell us about your first book, Eating with the Seasons. Yeah, Eating with the Seasons is a seasonal cookbook that incorporates Anishinaabe Moan language and cultural lessons. So it's uh, a little project I worked on when I was in college. Um, I made it like a small, it was like intended to be like a youth book for them to be able to learn some basic recipes that are also economical and teach some basic cooking skills, but then also be able to learn some basic Ojibwe Moan and uh, learn on the language and stuff like that. And um, so my book is available on blurb.com. I have soft covers, copies available for sale, but then I also made my ebook completely free because I want it to be a re- accessible resource for everybody because... I don't think like the language and stuff like that should be like have like a barrier or be withheld from people. So it's a gift. And so how do people find that gift of your ebook? Yeah, it's also on blurb.com. Okay. So if you just Google eating with the seasons on Anishinaabeg, Great Lakes region, um, you'll be able to find it. Or if you just, I think if you search my name, you might be able to find it, Derek Nicholas. Awesome. And then um, share with us some of the recipes in that book. Yeah, so it's like a collective of recipes. Um, my favorite recipe in there is probably like a curried squash soup recipe. Mm-hmm. That, Love it. that features like the Gaita Yokosomon squash, which is like an heirloom squash that was found in like some seeds underground many years ago and was re-germinated and brought back into our food systems. Um, now there's also like a nice little pollinator treat, which is some... Like seasonally local found berries like raspberries, blackberries, and with some lemon juice and some mint. It's just some nice so, little fun snacks. So what do you do with the berries and the lemon juice and the mint? You just kind of mix it all together. Ah, yep. that's simple. And it's just like a nice little refreshing treat. Okay. And um, and then um, also in that book you talked about um, – um, uh, the working with the moon in some ways, that recipes according to the moon? Yeah, so our seasons are kind of correspondent to like our moons and our food systems are heavily tied to like the moons. So, um, for example, like the month of August was Manomake Gizis, so like the rising moon. So during that moon, a lot of people go out and, well, I guess I shouldn't say during that moon, but during that time of year is when the rice is ready. So a lot of ricers go out and harvest wild rice, and um, a lot of our like food is contingent on the moons or the time of year and seasons. So we eat seasonally, and that's what helps us have a nice uh, nutritional balance and good lifestyle. And do, um, do you know what this month is? October and n- November? Um, I think it's like leaves changing, moon, or mm-hmm. like. Uh, like frost coming over the ground moon. I can't remember exactly. I don't want to like miss. Yeah, speak. yeah. No, I, I didn't want to put you on the spot. But so tell me your your personal background because you grew up um, in, in the in Milwaukee area. Yep. So um, I didn't really grow too much connected with the culture because I'm multi ethnic. Um, 
Lebanese, Native American, and also a lot of European, like um, German and <laughs> um, Russian and a whole bunch of stuff on my mom's side. It's like a big mixing pot, and then my dad's side is Native and Lebanese. But you rediscovered these roots somehow. Yep. How, did, how did that story happen? Yeah, so I went, went to college at University of Minnesota Morris. They have a tuition waiver for Native American students. So I took that opportunity and went there for college. And there I was able to get more connected with my culture, learning the language. And I took really inter- a lot of interest in that. And that um, kind of like connected with the food in a lot of ways. And I just kind of began to develop and I began more to grow more passion and interest and that kind of like lifestyle and yeah. So what is the um, what is at what what sits behind that that passion? Because I think it's actually um, almost a universal passion, and you hear it in the well, I hear it in the music. But it's this idea, this longing, and this longing to be connected to the earth and the food of the earth and to be part of this world. What I'm asking is, I'd love to get to the heart of what this journey meant for you. And, you know, it's funny how hard it is to talk about these things. I think, well, our food system, I can go off here, though. So it's almost like we're just all rushing around and eating and, and so many people don't have enough food and we have so much stress, especially right now. And it's like it's all churned up here. And how do we that that's not our our birthright our birthright is to be connected to the earth and be connected to each other and to eat in a way that's sacred and honors all mm-hmm. all beings and it feels to me like maybe you had a like a reconnection to that does that make sense or um yeah that's definitely where i'm at now but it was like a journey i wasn't always like that and i'm happy where i'm at now um I feel like my lamentation in life is around food work and food sovereignty and advocacy work. So that's where I've been devoting my energy and my time. And uh, I get a lot of intrinsic value out of seeing people fed healthy ways and being able to uh, feel things that they might not have felt before, whether it's good health or their spirit being fed and feeling foods recognizing foods that they never tasted before but their spirit has tasted before and getting connected back with the earth and it's very rewarding for me and like yeah 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 and so um some of these classes that you're teaching for free at seward co-op are super cool like you've got there's gonna be a video out soon on on um on on heat ovens in the ground yep the underground oven so that's that's exciting. That'll be coming out November third, and then also doing the tea workshop on November third, and then I believe on the seventeenth, I'm doing a bison roast recipe where I'm doing a bison roast and then turning that roast into some tacos. Oh, that's beautiful. And then, again, these are virtual classes, and anyone can go to Seward Co-op and just look under the events and then sign up for the class for free and learn um, more about this. And um, and you're going to have a new book out as well. Yep, I'm working on a new book right now. Um, I just built a business called Wisenig LLC, which translates to an Ojibwe come and eat, but it's a lot more beautiful than that. It doesn't translate to English too well. It means come and eat to everybody. It's not exclusive. It's everybody that's here on the earth plane and all the spirits that are in our world as well. So that um, that business is going to incorporate my new book. It's going to be about like plant profiles and talk about medicinal uses of plants and how they also use culinary 
and then also incorporate some recipes and oral stories with plants. And then uh, bringing a sauce to market that incorporates indigenous ingredients and then also doing food sovereignty, advocacy work, talking about food and colonism and, and also providing uh, indigenous foods and showcasing that. Wonderful. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back and continue our conversation. So come and turn me loose. Ain't got no time. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone who knows that the uh, the uh, colonized diet of sugar, salt, fat um, is just not very healthy for us or the planet. Um, with me right now is Derek Nicholas, and um, he's the author of the book, Eating with the Seasons. He is also nutrition coordinator at Division of Indian Work. And when we went on a break, we were talking about colonization and how has colonization affected our food and what we eat today? Yeah, like I was saying, it's a really loaded question because it goes a lot into it, but um, I'll just briefly break it down in a couple little ways. So colonization it was, in America, it was like the genocide of Native Americans and it really disrupted the Native American lifestyle and the way we eat and the way we live. And... Um, it kind of forced us to be reliant on the government and not being able to take care of ourselves the way we used to. So, for example, boarding schools, um, it tore families apart and they it shunned kids and they were punished for speaking the language. So a lot of our food was tied into our language. So if a family was go out and fish, they used the language to talk about how they tied the nets and how they fished. And uh, if that language was lost, a lot of that culture was lost, and they wouldn't go out and fish, and those things would start to die off. Also, putting us in reservations, some reservations are in the middle of nowhere and are in food deserts where they have no access to grocery stores, and they're reliant on getting their food at gas stations, which doesn't offer healthy foods. There's also commodity programs where families get reliant on government food, and that would be like cheese or which a lot of Native Americans are lactose intolerant or getting meat in the can with juices. So it's it's a really loaded question and it goes really deep and it can spread out in a lot of different directions, but I think that can maybe spread a little light on the issue. Right. And you know, finding almost like the cracks in the sidewalk where people can start eating healthy food raised with a good heart or something mm-hmm. or, or more connected and then feel that more health and sort of build back a better world or a better food system, improve the structures of the current food system. Yeah, it's just going to take a lot of time. Uh, I mean, like the food systems we have right now are just dominated by these big organizations and companies that kind of just strong arm these smaller companies that try to do things in a good way, whether it's organic farming or growing traditional foods that are grown on the land that might be a little harder to grow or more difficult. And uh, it's also the people as well. they got to make that decision that they want to eat healthy. That's a lot of challenges is fighting over convenience. I know getting that fast 
meal, getting fast food is a lot of convenience because it's cheaper and it's fast than getting some healthy food. So it's it's a two-way street, and it's kind of a battle between the consumer and the producers. Yeah, and it's what you're raised with. If it's, it's if that's all you're around, and that's what our body craves, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, these sugar, salt, fat. It's like a, it's it, it's an addict. I mean, it's it's a very um, unhealthy system. So unwinding that is is a challenge and a half. Um, and so that's why Seward Co-op is fantastic when people can shop at Seward Co-ops. Do you have some recipes that you know that people are like, oh, this is easy and something I can do that um, that's popular? Or uh, One recipe that I created that I've had a lot of positive feedback on that the kids have lot, uh, liked a lot, it was like a wild rice, quinoa, mm-hmm. bison, mushroom, casserole. Wow, um, yeah. The kids nicknamed it Indian Spaghetti because <laughs> kind of tastes just like spaghetti, but it's just wild rice, quinoa, bison, and mushrooms, and just throw in some, like, tomato paste and some tomato sauce and add some, like, sage and oregano as well. And it comes together really nicely. Great. That sounds great. Tell us about your work at the uh, Division of Indian Work. Yes, yeah, so I'm the nutrition program coordinator there, so my main responsibility is cooking for the programs there. And so we have a few different programs. We have a youth leadership development program, a youth leadership council program, a women's birthing, women's traditional birthing and doula program, like a violence prevention program. So I cook for those programs when they meet, but then I also do like a lot of research and advocacy work around uh, food sovereignty and stuff. And you're going to be starting a new business, um, making a sauce? Yep. We Ink LLC. It's kind of my... Uh, business where I'm just kind of like an umbrella to protect myself where I'm doing all my food adventures, um, putting on a new book, bringing a sauce to market, and then also kind of doing like food pop-ups and celebrating and showcasing indigenous foods. And and as a student, you studied economics. Yep, economics and global business management. So can so I mean I find so much hope in these patterns I really do and you know the the idea that if we can create our, or as we not if but as we shop at the co-op and as we create our own businesses and as we eat in a more sacred way I mean then we build up a whole different system than we have right now do you agree with that or that's that's what I'm trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's the, the plan. It's the goal. It's the plan. It's the goal, but it's not easy. Yeah, definitely not. It's going to be a lot of hard work, but hard work's always good work. So yeah, I like. Um, tell me about how kids react to this food. Yeah, um, a lot of time I get some really good feedback, and then sometimes I get some pushback. Um, when it's usually like traditional indigenous foods, um, it usually goes over pretty well. But when I try to something that they're not familiar with, sometimes I get some pushback. Like, for example, last week I cooked some cabbage, and I was trying to figure out a way how I can make it that the kids would like it. So I threw in some, like, bacon and onions, and they're still kind of turned off to try it. So it's yeah, it's just a battle, and it's just, just keep trying, and yeah. Um, yeah, and so what were some of the other foods that the kids uh, like? Um, they really like, like indigenous tacos, so I'll do, like, some bison tostitos. And stuff and incorporate uh, ingredients they found in like around Mexican Mexico area, uh, southern border area. Um, 
that bison, all the rice, mushroom, quinoa, bowl I was telling you about. Uh, there's a lot of things. Last night I made a pumpkin, uh, squash, coconut curry. And so yeah, that's that sounds totally awesome. Um, so, um, but again, it's not always easy to eat well. And do you ever? I mean, how do we make it easy to eat well? How do we find these integrations? That's that's sort of what your hope right now is too, especially with children. I mean, we've how how do we make it easy to to, or maybe easy is not even the right word. How do we make it accessible? I think it's just building an indigenous food pantry. It's just building up your pantry throughout the year and. Uh, yeah, that's really. I think that's what it really comes down to is surrounding yourself with those healthy foods and making sure you have access to them year round and having them on on hand. Um, and um, so, have you seen some people be able to transfer that 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 the health improvements? Because because I, I started the show with the idea of um, that diabetes in the 1950s, less than one percent of Americans had diabetes. By 2015, over seven percent had diabetes, and in a lot of Native American communities, diabetes is even a bigger problem. Um, is that tied to the food system? The rate of diabetes. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. It's heavily tied to our food systems. Yeah, and so part of this is also that um, we've sort of lost that connection with our plant relatives. Mm-hmm. We were sort of colonized in believing that the plants um, don't have – they're not sentient beings. And um, and yet I think – do you think plants are sentient? I mean that's uh, kind of a big word, but they have – Plants are worthy of themselves. Oh, of course. I believe it's really important to advocate for our plant and animal relatives. I mean, going back on the topic of colonization, another good example of why it's hard to be able to go back to the traditional food ways is because of colonization. Like, for example, line three, they're pumping a lot of water out of our wild rice river beds and also bringing toxins to our waters and when our wires get damaged, it damages our plant relatives and our animal relatives, which ends up falling back on us and damaging our own health. So, um, yeah, it's we got to be very cautious and aware of uh, the earth. And and does it feel better? Is it ha- does it feel happier to be more aware of the earth? Uh, I think like the more aware you become and get a better idea of what's ha- actually happening. It's a little more heartbreaking, but it's good to know what's happening so we can advocate for it. Well, and that's, yeah, um, it, yeah, it is, it is heartbreaking. And, but sometimes even like, uh, I'm thinking even at funerals, really sad, tragic times when people are together at those tragic times, it, it creates this, this, energy for solving things because you don't ever solve things if you stay removed. Mm-hmm. That's very true. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about um, the work that you do at the um, at the Division of Indian Work. Yeah, so um, just kind of bringing food to the community and trying to bring light to indigenous foods. So got that indigenous food series going on at the Seward Co-op. Um, cooking for the programs we have at DIW and trying to bring indigenous foods and 
uh, stuff back to them and provide them with healthy, culturally appropriate foods for whatever program it is. Um, then also doing research, trying to build the indigenous food pantry. And yeah. Like helping out the others and delivering food to others and doing cooking demos and you know, all that kind of good stuff. That is great stuff. So let's uh, tell again how people can learn about these free classes at Seward Co-op. Yeah, so you can go on Seward Co-op, uh, their website online, and you can register online there. Um, it'll bring you to like a registration link on Eventbrite, and you can register for free online. Uh, so, Derek, are you optimistic about the future, or are you fearful of the future? Do you think? I mean, I keep it. A- <laughs> I'm pretty neutral. Good. Um, good. I kind of like to stay in the present. <laughs> You know, and isn't that part of what the problem with colonization is, is that we've been colonized to not be in the present? Yeah, you might you might be right on that. Yeah, now that I think about that. Yeah. And pretty future-orientated people. Yeah, and I, I even in the questions that, that they were always like, what's going on now? But but when we're present to what is, it's such a lovely world out there. It really is, yep. You know, it's fall right now, and the seasons are changing, the leaves are changing colors, and beautiful time to go hike, and... Go and dry some fresh air before it starts getting too cold. Yeah, any recipe tips for this year? I mean, for this time of this season? Oh, well, pumpkins and squash is in season. So, I mean, that pumpkin, squash, coconut curry recipe I did was pretty good. Awesome. Go out and enjoy the world that's right here and right present right now. Thank you so much, uh, Derek and Nicholas. And if people want to find you, where can they connect with you? You can go on my Instagram, uh, Wiesenig, LLC. That's W-I-I-S-I-N-I-G, LLC. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. Well, darling, out like endless rain into a paper cup. They slither wildly as they slip away across the universe. Stardust. Hi, welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining us right now is um, Michelle Bruin. Um, she blogs at Forks in the Dirt. And uh, welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Michelle. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for having me. And I want to thank uh, Derek and Nicholas earlier for talking about these free classes at Seward Co-op coming up. And then when when you and I talked, you said, oh, I already signed up for those classes. So, <laughs> I love it. Small world in the Twin Cities food, food world. Yeah, because that is so neat, uh, the tea class. So tell us a little bit about uh, Forks in the Dirt. Oh, well, you know, I started it as just a way to share my love of local food, um, growing it, knowing your farmers, and then preserving it, too. It's kind of the three-step approach to eating local all year round, even in Minnesota. Even in Minnesota. So that's what we're going to talk about in this segment, because this is Halloween weekend, ooh. <laughs> and so <laughs> soon, like, the summer food's not going to be around. So, I mean, what can we do at this time of the year so that we can preserve this harvest um, and treat ourselves in the winter for sure for sure well and i you know when i was thinking about this I, there's lots of ways we can preserve food and i just want to give a shout out to our um meat producers and dairy producer farmers that are still working year-round here even though the produce goes away so i just wanted to give a shout out to those amazing farmers too because they never stop mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> um, good point 
Yeah, um, but as far as preserving vegetables, um, you know, there's still a lot of um, vegetables in the ground out there. Um, even just in my garden, and I know in a lot of the farms around here, there's all the root crops are still going strong. Um, potatoes would probably be the first ones to be pulled if they haven't already. But all the carrots and beets, um, turnips, even radishes, um, you know, those are all still in the ground. And then that's going to give you kind of an idea of, those are going to be able to be um, kept nice and cool in a refrigerator or a root cellar. So there's like some shelf-stable storage, um, and that's good for the, the the squash crops as well, the winter squash. Yeah, but you do need to be careful where you store that squash so people can go out right now and buy a lot of root vegetables and um, store them. Yep, yep. So, you know, a root cellar perfect, in a perfect world it would be around 40 to 50 degrees. Um, and, you know, decent humidity in there. Um, but really, if, as long as you're checking them, you know, lay them out in a single um, layer. You don't want to, like, pile up a bunch of stuff because when the things are touching each other is when they're going to go bad faster. Yeah. And so then um, some of the other ways to um, preserve the harvest, I mean, one of my, I think the easiest way, right, is simply freezing. Yeah, well, I think there's a couple different, you know, techniques for freezing. Um, you can either do the super simple way, like when you have too many tomatoes and you're going through it like crazy, you just take the core out, throw it in a freezer bag, and forget it until you want sauce, you know, in the winter. Um, you can also um, freeze things individually on a sheet pan so that you can take out just what you want from that bag that you'll eventually put those individually frozen things into. Um, this is really great for freezing, like, green beans, um, celery chunks, little itty-bitty um, half, um, you know, cherry tomatoes, things like that. It's a really nice way to be able to freeze. You can just leave it in overnight, and they're completely frozen, and then you can put them into a freezer bag, take out exactly what you need. Um, and Perfect. then the third thing with freezing is some things really do better blanched before they're frozen. They'll last a lot longer. Um and that's a lot of information to go into right now, but there's lots of great information out on the on the web, um, especially from the National Home Food Preservation website. It's a great website that is very research based. Yeah, say the name of that website again. Yeah, the National Home Food Preservation website. Great, and then um, another. Now I'm going to double check. Yeah, yeah, I'll let you, but another fun way of checking uh, of, of preserving uh, food is to ferment, and that can oh, seem a little intimidating for someone who hasn't done it, but it can actually be fun and easy. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to get into the fermenting. It's called the National Center for Home Food Preservation. There you go. That's exactly the right word. <laughs> if we wanted to look that up. Okay. So fermenting. Um, really, it's all about adding a little um, salt into, say, cabbage to make your typical sauerkraut. You can add a salt water brine to things to ferment that way. You can also, um, you know, that's what yogurt is. That's how we are able to preserve so much um, food and add the good um probiotic bacteria as well. Right, and that's one of the fascinating things. Um, throughout the world, people have naturally fermented for a long time. And so um, from sauerkrauts to um, kimchi, um, th- these are just good for our guts. Our body needs these fermented foods. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, being able to just have something that you've made and you know that it's organic 
Um, and also organic vegetables do ferment easier. Um, I have definitely found this out when I, you know, before I used to grow all so much of my own food and I would buy something from the grocery store and I would try to do some kind of a ferment with it. It it sometimes didn't work, but <laughs> when it's an organic and it's not treated with any chemicals, it does seem to um, ferment easier as well. Um, it's just being able to have something on hand in your refrigerator. And they fermented foods last for months and months, um, six to nine months, I would say, is a typical time frame. Um, having it right at, at hand to be able to just have like a, a, you know, a couple tablespoons of kimchi with your eggs in the morning or something with, with whatever, um, it really adds to your health. And it's a great way to incorporate you know, locally grown foods if you did this yourself or purchased it from a local um, craft food vendor, like at a farmer's market or something. And then dehydrating. Yeah, well, I think the easiest thing to start with dehydrating would definitely be, like, the teas, like the the herbs for teas, like we were talking about with that class. Um, And then herbs for cooking. Um, It's just such an easy way to just air dry and dehydrate things like that. I also really like dehydrating um, things like celery. I know that seems like a weird thing because it's so much water. Celery and celery leaves are a really fun thing to dehydrate. Um, celery leaves are amazing. I, I grew some too, so I mean, but that, so I have that really thin celery. I don't remember the t- particular tripe, but wow, does that make any type of food just pop? Because you can just throw a little bit of your fresh celery leaves on top of that. Um, and I yeah. know, yeah. yeah. Uh, we have less than a minute, so we got to just we'll just put canning, and people can check out canning on the side. <laughs> but sure. so, if people want to learn more about you and uh, White Bear Lake, where would they find more information? Yeah, I'm at forksinthedirt.com, and I'm on Instagram and Facebook as well at Forks in the Dirt. And then uh, the White Bear Lake Farmers Market. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited for this! White Bear Lake Winter Farmers Market is coming up on its fifth season. We've got like 20 vendors. Um, all local food vendors and and farmers that have grown good food just for you guys to come and check it out. It's pretty fun. So thanks so much for joining us, Michelle. Michelle, what would your idea of um, food freedom be? My idea of food freedom? Oh, well, I kind of think it is being able to choose who we buy our food from and being able to make that um, decision based on like our love of the land and the people who grew it rather than a dollar amount. So I think that that would be extremely freeing. And then being able to grow your own food and having the land to do it. Wonderful. I love that. Being able to choose our food based on our relationships with each other and our relationships with the soil. Right. Yeah. How cool. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. Again, your website is Forks in the Dirt. And thanks um, earlier to uh, Derek and Nicholas um, with uh, the Division of Indian Work. And um, congratulations to Sewer Co-op on making it 50 years.